I am Pastor Corrine Boroff, Senior Pastor at Anderson First United Methodist Church. Thank you for listening to our worship service today. If you want to learn more about this church, visit our website at andersonfirst.org. Have a blessed day and enjoy the message. Lord Jesus, thank you for this beautiful day, for the cool breeze and the warm sunshine and this beautiful scene that you have painted for us. Lord Jesus, we ask you to come this morning as we spend this moment, this time to take away all of the things that cloud our hearts, our to-do lists, our ambitions, the never-ending stresses it seems that we have in our lives. Let us use this time, Lord, to listen to you, to listen to the love you have for all of us. Help us use our hands and our feet and our hearts and our minds for your will, not for our own. Lord Jesus, you gave us a prayer that we still use that highlights everything that we wish to say. When we spend this time in a moment to say the Lord's Prayer together, let us unite our voices in our hearts and our minds, that we come together within our differences, that we speak the Lord's will together as one. Will you pray with us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the time where we spend the resources that we were ever so blessed with to give back to those who need it most. Let us pray that the resources we are able to give to our church, to our community, be spent in a way that glorifies our Lord. Amen. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. 
The scripture lesson is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9. A green shoot will sprout from Jesse's stump, from his roots a budding branch. The life-giving spirit of God will hover over him, the spirit that brings wisdom and understanding, the spirit that gives direction and builds strength, the spirit that instills knowledge and fear of God. Fear of God will be all his joy and delight. He won't judge by appearances won't decide on the basis of hearsay. He'll judge the needy by what is right, render decisions on earth's poor with justice. His words will bring everyone to awed attention. A mere breath from his lips will topple the wicked. Each morning, he'll pull on sturdy work clothes and boots and build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. The wolf will romp with the lamb, the leopard sleep with the kid, calf and lion will eat from the same trough, and a little child will tend them. Cow and bear will graze the same pasture. Their calves and cubs will grow up together, and the lion eats straw like the ox. The nursing child will crawl over rattlesnake dens. The toddler stick his hand down the hole of a serpent. 
Neither animal nor human will hurt or kill on my holy mountain. The whole earth will be brimming with knowing God alive, a living knowledge of God ocean deep, ocean wide. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've been blessed this morning. Have you? It's just been a wonderful time of worship, and I'm glad I came. During these summer months of worship, some of you may have noticed that I have chosen to consider in my sermons the first of the Ten Commandments. Those commandments which call us to worship and honor God, to actually live as if God matters to us. I'm not sure if I'll continue through all the rest of the commandments, but in the aftermath of the recent mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, which number 252 and 253 in the first 220 days of 2019 alone, I thought it timely to think about the commandment in Scripture which says, you shall not murder. Now, no one needs to get nervous because this is not a sermon on guns. I am not taking a position one way or another on that politically hot topic. However, in light of the growing domestic terror in our country, a nation in which the taking of the life of an individual has become so common that we hardly notice it anymore, perhaps it's time to consider once again the value of life and the one who gave us life. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, is short and to the point. You shall not murder. God speaks to his people in simple, direct words that we can understand. This is how God's people behave. This is what distinguishes God's people from those who have chosen to worship other gods. This is the way in which God's people live as a sign, a signal, a witness that God has not left this broken world to its own devices. It is one way in which God's people live out the values of God's kingdom. And it's countercultural. It sticks out like a sore thumb in a world bloodied and broken by violence. But there it is. God's people do not murder. But is it murder or is it kill? Some people have some Christians have argued that this commandment refers to killing that is intentional and premeditated, that murder is different from self-defense and from capital punishment and other forms of killing. Others suggest that the Hebrew word here is more accurately translated, kill. The Hebrew verb to kill does mean murder in certain contexts, but it is also used in scripture to refer to unintentional killing as well as to the execution of a convicted killer. And much later, when Jesus comes along, he broadened its meaning radically when he said that everyone knows that we shouldn't kill, but harboring anger or insulting a brother or a sister is no different and is also liable to judgment. 
And even more directly, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, we read, All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. It must be noted that this Hebrew verb to kill is not used in the Old Testament to refer to the killing of war, though scholars debate the nuances of meaning which are not always clear. It seems fair to say, however, that a broad, unconditional claim is being made on the people of God. Any act of violence against someone out of anger or hatred or malice or for personal gain, in whatever circumstances and by whatever method, if it results in death, breaks this commandment. Murder is too limited a term to capture its intent. God's people do not kill. This is what the text says. It's simple and direct. In a broken world in need of restoration and wholeness, you shall not kill. The basis of this commandment, of course, is that all life belongs to God. After all, the demand that we live without killing makes no sense if God is not our creator. Genesis shows us clearly that God created and intended life to be lived without killing. Have you ever noticed what it says in the creation story of Genesis 1? After God created the first humans in God's own image, he blessed them and gave them work to do in caring for the earth and everything in it. And then God said in verses 29 through 31, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the field and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw that what he had made, and indeed it was very good. Did you notice? Not only human beings, but it also appears that even animals were created vegetarians. The Quaker painter Edward Hicks in his painting The Peaceable Kingdom depicted visually what we read from Isaiah this morning. The wolf will romp with the lamb, the leopard sleep with the kid, calf and lion will eat from the same trough and a little child will tend them. God's intention is that no life be taken. Life is not for us to do with whatever we want. We are not God. It is up to God to determine what shall be done with life. But something went terribly wrong in creation. When Adam and Eve chose to listen to God's creation rather than to God, when they chose their own way rather than God's way, sin entered the world. And with sin came enmity and pride and selfishness and fear, and life on earth was no longer peaceable. Animals which had once lived mutually and companionably in the good garden alongside humans now live in dread because Humanity lives by destroying life. And not just humans against animals, but brother came against brother. And so violence and death has become the norm. This is the sober and sad truth 
in the world in which God's people now live. This is not the world that God intended. It is a world we made by our sin. This commandment, you shall not kill, reminds us that we were created to, not created to live by killing. We were not created to live by killing. This commandment reminds us of that which in our sin we have forgotten. As God's people, we have been transformed into a peaceable people who have no need to base our lives upon the destruction and hurt of others. Now, let that sink in a moment. Because we are a people who belong to God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Jesus the Christ, the God who is active and present in our lives to bring about our deliverance, because we belong to this God and have aligned ourselves with him and worship God alone, we are transformed. We are transformed into peaceable people who do not need to base our lives upon the destruction and hurt of others. We are called by God to live in such a way that we do not have to kill. It's interesting, if we pay attention, that many of the big societal issues of our day are battles, sometimes quite literally battles, over issues of life and death. Should Christians go to war or not? Should we abort an unborn life or not? Should we exercise capital punishment or not? Should people have the right to choose to mercifully end their suffering with help or not? Christians often find themselves on the side of life in some cases and against life in other cases, even debating the very definition of life itself. I think that what theologians Stanley Hauwas and William Willimon have written in their book, The Truth About God, is helpful here, and I quote several uh, sentences here. To ask of this commandment against killing, does this mean Christians shouldn't go to war, is to reduce this joyful invitation to a legalistic requirement when it ought to be seen as an invitation to praise. In the cross of Christ, Christians are brought into a peaceful world where we are not forced to sustain our lives by killing. Jesus did not resort to killing, even to self-defensive killing, to defend or establish his kingdom. Yet, he was vindicated by God in his resurrection. He has shown us the way, the way of the cross, which defeats the world, but not on the world's terms. Without lying about the violence of the world, Christians are given the means of being free from the world's violence. Christians are not simply prohibited from killing, but are also invited to live in a way that does not force us to kill. That's the end of the quote. I wonder, is our society so violent in great part because the church, Christ's body, has failed to be a community of nonviolence, a community that worships the God of peace? 
This is a broken and violent world, no doubt about it. The choices we make are complex and difficult. There are many ways to kill someone and to kill communities. But what would happen if we did not just give in to the reality of this world, but chose instead to live as Christ, who followed this commandment literally and even expanded the parameters by which it was to be understood? What would happen? It was April 6th, 1930, and finally the coastal village of Dandi, India was in sight. Mahatma Gandhi had walked 241 miles from his own village just to gather up some salt from the seabed. It was a simple thing, but it was illegal under the British colonial rule of India. Gandhi was openly defying the British salt law. This tiny man, dressed in a traditional Indian white cotton dhoti, was openly standing against the oppression of his homeland by the entire British Empire. In a few short weeks, people from all over India were making salt illegally, and more than 100,000 were sent to jail. Many more became victims of police violence, but none retaliated or even defended themselves. What mattered most to Gandhi was that Indians fight for freedom, not with hatred and violence, but by resisting with nonviolent means. This was only the beginning. And Gandhi's vision and passion galvanized the nation, and it was a long and difficult struggle. But 17 years later, with hardly any violence toward the British and in the face of brutal opposition, Britain simply lowered its flag and left. That was 72 years ago, on August 15th, 1947. Frank Rogers, Jr., was a colleague <coughs> of Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., and he tells the story of an incident in Birmingham, 1963. Birmingham was reputed at the time to be the most segregated city this side of Johannesburg, South Africa. And Rogers tells the story this way. One evening, we spoke at a church in Birmingham. The, pl the place was packed. People filled the pews and aisles and the window alcoves and balconies. Even the parking lot was fitted with speakers for the overflowing crowd. As King stepped onto the podium, a white man, uh, white man in the front row stood up and walked toward him. Not until the man was quite close did King see the hatred in his eyes. And the man lunged after King, knocked him to the floor, and beat him on the chest. The church erupted. A mob swarmed around King, grabbed the attacker, and headed toward the door. Cries rang out, kill him, lynch him, beat him. And in the midst of the chaos, Martin Luther King staggered up and boomed his ver baritone voice through the microphone, stop. The place fell silent. King walked over to the man, put his arm around the assailant's shoulder and looked at the crowd. What do you want to do to this man? Kill him? Beat him? Do unto him what he's done unto us? That isn't our task. Our task is to step into his shoes, to ask ourselves, what would it be like if everyone we knew, our parents, ministers, teachers, taught us, since we could walk, that the Negro was a thing? 
Our task is to see the hatred in his eyes and refuse to mirror it ourselves, to feel his fear and glimpse his goodness and show him what it means to be a human being welcomed into the beloved community that holds us all. Martin Luther King may have saved a man's life that day, but he certainly challenged us all with the nonviolent peace-building practice of loving our enemies. And Martin Luther King challenged a nation. And the Civil Rights Act was signed into law 55 years ago on July 2nd, 1964. One more story. In her book, Then Shall Your Light Shine, Joyce Holliday tells this story. In an isolated rural area of Brazil, members of a small base community were locked in a battle for survival. Just as they prepared to harvest their crops, the Brazilian parliament voted to take over their land for a government project. The community moved on and planted again. And once again, a vote of parliament pushed them off their land before they could harvest. Their children were hungry. They had nowhere to move. But to move would mean starvation for them. And to stay would likely mean death by government forces for the entire community. An emotional discussion took place. And finally, a woman rose and said she had a plan. And a few days later, a woman appeared at a wealthy suburb of the city that was a long walk from her home. She and her ragged children sat down on the beautiful lawn in front of the house of a parliament member. Soon a servant came out and offered them bread, but the woman refused. We have not come for bread, she said. The servant went back into the house, and before long he returned with a handful of money. We do not want your money, the mother said. Baffled, the wife of the parliament member who had been watching from inside eventually came out. Well, what do you want, she asked the poor woman. We're going to die, she replied, and this is such a nice place. We thought we'd die here. But why are you going to die, the stunned wife asked. The woman explained what was happening to her community. And similar conversations were taking place in all the wealthy parts of the city where other community mothers had gone with their children. And soon the phones were ringing off the hook at Parliament. Each wife was so moved that she called her husband to tell the story. The vote never took place, and the community members harvested their crops in peace. What would happen if we did not just give in to the reality of the world, but chose instead to live as Christ, who followed the commandment, you shall not kill literally, and even expanded the parameters by which it was to be understood? What would have what would happen? Do we have the imagination? At the very least, we could change a little piece of the world in which we live. At the very least, we could declare that the world broken and battered by violence, that there is another way. It's the way of God's kingdom, a kingdom of peace. It's the way of Jesus the Prince of Peace. But this is a rather troublesome commandment, isn't it? Despite, or doesn't, sorry, doesn't the brokenness of the world make this commandment idealistic? 
Isn't the whole idea totally unrealistic? From the look of things, you'd think so. We've come to believe that there is such a thing as redemptive violence. That is to say that there are times that, evil in, that the evil inherent in violence is needed to subdue a greater evil. Violence is the default position in our world. Violence is the easy way to deal with conflict. Living by the commandments of God requires much, much more of us. It requires courage. It requires sacrifice. It requires great love and great compassion and great grace. These are all in poor supply in our world. But let's not forget that these commandments are not given to the governments and lawmakers of the world. They are not given to the world's citizens. They are given to God's people, to citizens of God's kingdom. And God's people live on the foundation of some pretty astounding truths. The whole of Scripture affirms these truths. And so let me remind you of what we all believe and testify to. First, life belongs to God, and life is precious to God. Second, God created us to live without killing. And third, this world is not the ultimate reality. Fourth, with God, anything is possible. God can make good and bring forth beauty out of any situation and out of any person. And fifth, as God's people in Christ Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been given all the resources we need to deal with conflicts peaceably in the manner and style of Jesus Christ. But how do we make this practical? Maybe we cannot all agree as followers of Jesus about what this commandment requires of us. So let's turn you shall not kill around and declare instead you shall honor and protect life. Because we worship the God who pronounced life good and precious and of infinite worth. How do we do this? Here's one idea. We honor and protect life when we choose confession and reconciliation and forgiveness instead of bre the breaking of relationships. We face this choice almost every day, don't we? When we disregard the value of our relationships, we disregard the value of life. When we give up on our relationships, we give up on the life of someone who is precious to God. Here's another idea. We honor and protect life when we choose to live with less so that others may have more. You know, much of the conflict of our world is between those people who have an overabundance of the world's goods and those who have very little. Those who have little fight for the right to have what others do and those who have much fight to protect what they have and secure the means of getting more. We take a stand for life when by our choice we do with less so that others may enjoy what we do and what we have. Here's a third idea. 
We honor and protect life when we choose nonviolent means of conflict resolution. Conflict is inevitable. It is the way things are, and though most of us wish to avoid conflict and its discomfort, it can be healthy and a helpful thing in our lives. But it will never be healthy or helpful if violence becomes the means by which that conflict is addressed. Avoid the default position. Avail yourself of the resources of the Spirit. Look to Jesus who shows the way. Honor life, even the life of one with whom you are in conflict. And here's a final idea. We honor and protect life when we speak for life, all life, in our public discourse. The world needs to see the people of God at their very best. We cannot be silent. We cannot be arrogant or rude. We cannot speak for one life to the exclusion of another. We cannot help one life by standing on the back of another. When Jesus blessed the children, he preached a sermon on the value of life. And when Jesus touched the leper, he honored a life that society declared unclean. And when Jesus spoke to the woman caught in adultery, he affirmed the truth that God can make anyone whole again. When Jesus washed Judas's feet, he demonstrated the value of life in relationship and the message of forgiveness. And when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he reminded us that even if we die in our struggle with the world, God will raise us up once again. The fundamental presumption in Scripture is quite simple. Hawass writes, life belongs to God. And then he cautions us not to worship life itself. Life is not an end in itself. Nowhere in the Bible is life spoken of as inherently sacred. Life is God's creation. We stand in awe of life as we stand in awe of God. In this world, there is much worth dying for. So life can never be an end in itself. By our very nature, life is always slipping away from us, reminding us of our vulnerability and the blessed giftedness of our lives. And so, do not kill. As God's people, let us live in such a way that we honor and protect this precious gift of life that belongs to and is beloved by God. Amen. Stray bullet and a monk cries, a 
baby won't be coming home tonight Sirens screaming down the avenue Just another story on the evening news Oh, oh. Politics and prejudice How did it ever come to this When everybody's gotta pick a side don't matter if you're wrong or right, no. And so it goes, and I'll hold on to hope, and I won't let go, cause I, I, I believe you and me are sisters and brothers, and I, I, I believe we're made to be here for each other, and we'll never fall if we walk hand in hand, but our world together again, yeah, I, I, I believe in the end, love wins. Sometimes it takes a lot of faith to keep believing there will come a day when the tears and the sadness, the pain and the hate, the struggle, the madness, will all fade away, yeah. I, I, I believe you and me are sisters and brothers, cause I, I, I believe we're made to be here for each other, and we'll never fall if we walk hand in hand, with a world that is broken together stand for the benediction. May the love of God the Father and the peace of Christ and fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you now and always. Amen. Go now and go in peace.